Today we are going to be talking about joy, and the hymn that we sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, um, beautifully sums up this entire sermon. Um, As we sang it, I was thinking that uh, we could really just read those lyrics and believe them, and we would get it. We would get what, what this sermon is about. Because joy in our world uh, is elusive. It seems like all of life is really a quest for joy. We try to fill our lives with things that would make us happy. We um, try to do things, both believers and non-believers in this world, that would give us some sort of lasting joy. Everything that we do is a quest for joy. I mean, if you just think about marriage, we don't get married just so that we can wear a ring. We get married so that two people together can double their experiences and we can have joy from having children, from living a life together. We're not seeking just a roommate. We want someone with whom we can build memories, that we can rear a family, that we can live a life filled with joy. I would argue that a lot of what we call anxiety in our culture is a realization that there is nothing outside of ourselves that really brings us joy. It's that sinking feeling of, is this all there is? That is why so many people in the light of COVID are reacting with so much fear I don't know if you saw my, my little video that I made uh, that was really born from the fact that uh, it bothers me. I'm just being honest with you. It bothers me to see Christians acting like babies and so afraid. It bothers me to talk to some of my brother pastors and see the fear in them and the reactions that they're having it belays the fact that we don't actually believe what God's Word says. And so I want us to kind of peel back the layers. I want us to think about how life that we live goes, and I want us to understand that joy and happiness are two totally different things. I mean, I'm happy when I, I get something that I want. You know, I get, get a new pocket knife or I, I, I have, have this thing or that thing. Happiness is, is, you know, a trip to Disney World and woo, yay, and, and slushies and, and joy. The circumstances are immaterial. I can experience joy in a funeral home. I can experience joy in the ICU. I can experience joy broken down on the side of the road in the rain because joy recognizes that we know how the story ends. I recently was talking to Chip uh, about Alabama football, and since he's come, moved here, I don't know if you know Chip, but they've moved here from Ohio, he didn't, hadn't been around and so, you know, Alabama to him feels like some kind of juggernaut, and granted, 52 to 3, seriously, I mean... 
Could we not find any four-string players to play? And I was like, it's not always been this case. You didn't get to experience the DeBose years or the Shula years. Um, and I was telling him about the 1992 season. I don't know if you remember that season, but um, Lord bless him, our, our coach at the time. I, I love him to death. I love his voice. I love the way that he did everything, but he was so conservative. And it was, wasn't it three games that were won in the last minute. It wasn't 52 to three. It was like 21 to 19 kind of games. And so in talking about that, I went out to YouTube and started watching the Alabama-Florida game from 92, the Alabama-Auburn game from 92, and it's high tension, right? It's seconds left. Stallings is pacing the sideline, the only man in the stadium wearing a tie. But I wasn't really worried, right? I know how it ends. That's how we can live our life. We, we, things happen, things come at us, but we know how the story ends. So let's take the next 45 minutes to an hour, peel back the layers a little bit, and let's just get real with each other. There's a problem. There's a problem with humanity. There's a problem with our lives. There's a problem in our hearts. And it all starts at the garden. I've joked about a friend of mine, Patrick, who uh, this is a guy that I discipled from the time he was saved all the way up until uh, he was pastoring a church. So we knew each other for years and he pre preached his first sermon. And it's pretty common with new preachers. Either they, they preach for five minutes and they're like done, or they preach for three hours. Well, Patrick was preaching from the book of Hebrews. And as he's preaching, he kept backing up and he kept backing up and he kept backing up. To understand this, we really have to understand this. And the next thing you know, we're an hour deep in this sermon that this poor congregation is having to sit through and he's gotten all the way backed up to the garden. In fact, it was kind of funny. One of the deacons in that church afterwards gave him a slip of paper that was just had a Bible verse written. It was just, I don't remember what the verse was. It was like Exodus 514, and he just stuck it in his pocket and then later looked it up, and it was, and Moses said unto Pharaoh, let my people go. <laughs> so we're going to back all the way up to the garden because that's really where the problem begins. In Genesis chapter 2, we read, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to Eden and to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And yet, Eve ate of the fruit, and she gave to Adam, who was with her, and he ate of the fruit. And yet they're still walking and talking. Now, we can see that that's a grace, that's mercy, that God didn't just strike them dead. In fact, every breath that any human being takes from that moment until today is mercy. Mercy. Because what we deserve was death in the garden. But 
It also meant that at that moment, death was introduced to humanity. In Romans chapter five, it says, for as by one man's sin, death entered the world, and death by sin, for all have sinned. Because of the fact that we're sinners, death is what's coming for us. Death is stalking us all. Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic philosopher, wrote, the final hour when we cease to exist does not itself bring death. It merely of itself completes the death process. We reach death at that moment, but we have been a long time on the way. All that you see will soon perish, and those who witness this perishing will soon perish themselves. Die in extreme old age or die before your time, it'll all be the same. Everyone in this room is going to die. Everyone who has ever lived is going to die. Death is stalking us. And that has a huge impact on how we view life. In fact, in Hebrews chapter two, the writer of Hebrews says something really curious. He says that Jesus will deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that all of humanity, all humans are living under the fear of death and that shackles us. I've shared with the church how strange, I've always found it, that whenever I'm around someone who's soon to die, almost always the TV in the room is on. It seems so bizarre to me to hear the machines that we use to just wring out the last drop of life possible and the laugh track from a sitcom competing for each other in the same room. Why do you think that the TV's on? It's not for that person laying there. He didn't care or she doesn't care. In fact, he or she probably can't control the remote. The TV is on to distract us because we don't want to think about the fact that we are going to die. We don't want to contemplate the fact that this body is breaking down. I am 50 years old, and it shocks me how often I injure myself reaching for a cup of coffee. <laughs> how is that possible? Or... You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be home from the gym and I'll reach to grab a bag real quick and be like, oh, uh, okay. I don't know what happened, but that's not good. Let's take it slow. Our bodies are breaking down and we don't want to contemplate that. And so we fill our lives with lots of puppet shows and trinkets to distract ourselves from that fact. When something happens to remind us of that fact, we don't like it. 
We want to do whatever possible to push that away. The reason why people are walking around so afraid of the COVID, even though it has a, what is it, 0.0078% chance of fatality? Well, that's a greater chance of fatality than me sitting there watching Seinfeld. I don't want to do anything that could roll the dice. We don't like silence because that makes our mind start going and thinking. And when we start thinking, it reminds us so that we we do whatever we can do to not think. There's a a great book. It's poorly written, but there's a great book that says that addiction is worship. It's the name of the book, Addiction is Worship. And it profits that All addictions ultimately come down to the fact that we don't want to recognize that God is God and he has authority over our lives and he can take us or and he can give us and it's all about him. And so we want to take back control of where our mind goes and so we drink and we use drugs and we do things. And I would say that any... that. That's most of what the American experience is, is thinking about anything except control is an illusion. Forget COVID. I could be driving to Walmart and get run down like the dog that I am by some chicken truck. Or some fool could not know how to use a merge lane. We'll go back there because I, I think, don't think I've had a sermon in four weeks that hadn't brought up the merge lane on East Megan and caused me to have a, get squished between two 18-wheelers. I could be walking along and just trip and hit my head just right. We are fragile little pink meat bags. Microscopic virus, not COVID, could kill me. Now, they'll write it up as COVID, guaranteed. So with all of that going on, with all of humanity struggling under this pressure, this slavery of the fear of death, we have no hope. Of ourselves, there's nothing we can do From what Romans chapter 5 says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all is sin. Not only are we sinners, we personally can't stop sinning. No matter how often I go through life going, Tom, shut up, Tom, shut up, Tom, shut up. I always end up with athlete's tongue because I stuck my foot squarely in my mouth. I can't overcome lust. I can't overcome anger. I personally, not some kind of corporate issue, I personally can't overcome my sin. And so God's condemnation of death is correct. So how in the world could I possibly go through life with joy? the text that John Luke read. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light 
I hope you see the analogy that all that we've talked about is darkness. Man labors under this slavery. There is no light. In this text, John is using this analogy that suddenly, a candle is lit. John was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here, John takes that analogy of like a candle in the light. John is coming and saying, light is coming. And God doesn't just show up with a candle. He burst forward in radiant light. God himself became a man and came among us. John in John chapter one says, this logos, this word, all things were created by him and for him and through him all things exist. God just didn't send some truth. God didn't just send some light. God came himself. And so, all of a sudden, Emmanuel shown up. Jesus steps onto the scene. And for 30 years, he walks, he lives a life just like we have to live. And he's tempted in every way like we are, and yet remained without sin. He became a shining example of truth. He became a shining example of grace. He is full of glory. And when John says, we have seen his glory, John, I'm sure, is referring back to the fact that we, those disciples, saw when he was transfigured and unclothed himself from this bodily form, and John saw him as he was and fell on the ground like a dead man and worshipped him. This Jesus not only lived for 33 years, without sin the next verse after that chat verse in Romans death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who was sinning was not like the transgression of Adam but who was a type of the one to come there's an echo throughout the Old Testament that something is coming who be like Adam Adam was our federal representative. He represented us in that when he sinned, sin passed to everyone. Someone is coming who could be our representative. And it didn't make sense. Paul calls it the great mystery. How in the Old Testament do you read about a king who's coming with a rod of iron and yet he's also a suffering serpent? How, do, how is God going to put together justice and mercy that doesn't make sense. In the book of Psalms that we read last week, we read the text where it says, and justice and mercy kiss. How is that possible? Justice demands that there's a payment. Justice demands that punishment is met out, right? If someone has done something wicked, we don't want the judge to just go, oh, it's okay, you can go, it's fine. I see that you, you feel bad about it. Have we read about a judge that, that sat and a rapist came up to him and said, look, judge, your honor, I only did it one time. I, I feel really bad about it. I'll promise I'll never do it again. And the judge said, okay, okay. 
You can go. That's not justice. That's not right. There needs to be punishment. He needs to go. What is it we say in the South? He needs to go under the jail. We want justice for everyone but ourselves. So how do justice and mercy meet? This Jesus who came and lived a perfect life, was, who was without sin, the most wicked, vile thing humanity has ever done is that when we saw the God-man, the man who had never done anything wrong, we corporately said, kill it. And Jesus, who had done no sin, had done nothing wrong, had broken no laws, was stripped naked and beaten, was mocked cruelly as a crown of thorns are pushed down on his head. You call yourself a king? Hail, King Jesus! Imagine these rough soldiers standing around making fun of him. Hey, 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 bring me that robe. This will be funny. Put the robe over him. Woo! You're the king mocked him. And then put that cross on his back and made him walk outside of the city gates along the busy thoroughfare where everybody who walked by could shake their head. And they nailed him to that tree and they lifted him up, continuing to make fun of him. Hey! You healed others. Save yourself, biggin. And Jesus hung there until he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt alone. And then with a loud cry, he said, It is finished. And at that moment, those words, he wasn't referring to his life. He wasn't grasping for one last eek of life. No, he is saying, finally, justice and mercy kiss. The punishment has been met out on someone who doesn't deserve punishment. And so we have the ability to come to God and say, give me Jesus' righteousness and take my sin and put it on him on the cross. And God accepted that sacrifice. We know that he did because three days later, Jesus got up out of that grave. I don't care who you follow, who you think is a wise man. Buddha is dead. Mohammed is dead. Seneca is dead. Jesus is alive. He got up out of that grave. And so we know that our sin sacrifice was accepted. And so Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 61 these beautiful words prophesying this to come. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. 
to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Because God accepted that sacrifice, we can be made a new creation. All the old is passed away. We, in some spiritual way, died with him. In Romans chapter six, it says, for we are buried by baptism with Jesus into death. So that when we see his resurrection, we can see that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also can walk in newness of life. God didn't just save us so we could come here and sing songs and act like we're Christians. God saved us because he freed us from the shackles of death. When Jesus got out of that grave, death died to you. It has no power over you. You are free. C.S. Lewis, writing to a friend who was soon to die, said, Can you not see death as the friend and deliverer? Death means stripping off that body which is tormenting you, like taking off a hair shirt or getting out of a dungeon. What is there to be afraid of? You have long attempted, and none of us does more, a Christian life. Your sins are confessed and absolved. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than we leave behind. Do you not see that because of the work that Jesus did, death is not our enemy. Death is defeated. It has no strength over us. So we alone, the rest of all of humanity, remember we read, are slaves to the fear of death. We are freed from that. And so because of that, our lives can be filled with joy because we know the end of the story. We know that because we can sing up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes, that those foes have no strength over us, have no power over us. Death and sickness have been defeated. Yes, we still labor in these bodies. We still fight this flesh. We still sin. We still err every day. But we know how the story ends. We know that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians such beautiful words. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is not our enemy any longer. Those that you love and know who have died, and you know that they were in Christ, they don't mourn for them. I think of the story uh, that we heard when we were at the International Learning Center for the IMB. The, the, at the time, the president of the IMB, Uncle Jerry, um, shared this story. There were three retired missionaries, uh, a husband and wife and another man that had gone to Iraq in between the Desert Storm, Desert Shield and the second go in Iraq during that time period that he was an expert in drilling wells. And so he had gone to Iraq to drill wells to help those people for the IMB. And they were traveling along a road one day and they uh, hit an IED um, and blew their vehicle up and both of the men died. And the wife was injured severely and was in a coma. She was airlifted from there to Germany and then from Germany, still in a coma, she was uh, carried to a hospital in Dallas, Texas, which is where she was from, so that the family could be near her. And it was a few weeks after the accident occurred that she actually came out of the coma. And she asked, obviously, about her husband and the other missionary that were there, um, and nobody would answer her questions. You just need to focus on you getting healthy. And, and uh, Uncle Jerry, the, the, again, the president of the IMB, was tasked with telling her that uh, her husband and this other man had passed away. And so when he walked in the room with tears in her eyes, she looked at him and said, did they make it? And he just said no. And everybody had a good cry. At the funeral, he shared this. I imagine this story from the other side. That these two men enter into their glory. They enter into the presence of the Lamb. All pain is gone. They behold their Savior. They hear, well done, my good and faithful servants. Enter into your rest. And they look at their Savior and they say, did she make it? Not yet. See, we've got a warped view of things because we cling so tightly to this earth and all of our stuff and all of the things that we know here. This is not your home. This is merely our proving ground. This is merely the place where we get to come along beside the God that made us to help him snatch some other people out of the fire, to preach his gospel, to live a life that glorifies and magnifies him. But this is not our home. So if my car's broke down the side of the road, who cares? This is just a momentary glitch. In just a few years, I will stand in front of my Savior. When I'm in the ICU, 
Maybe I get to get there first. We're not glorifying death here. We're glorifying real life. Our lives, if there were, we get focused on the things around us here, we're just like the rest of the world. We fight and claw to cling, to hang on. On the, I don't know if you guys have seen that for the first time in 1,200 years, Two stars are going to align and give us a Christmas star. I, don't, I have no idea what that's going to look like. Uh, I'm excited. I'm 1,200 years. That's, I'm not quite that old, kids. So um, we were talking about that, and I was saying that there are some fringe Jewish groups called the Kabbalah that are looking at that and saying that the Messiah is coming because it's every time that that star has appeared, a great prophet has arrived in, in their teaching, and they're saying that the Messiah is coming. And so one of my kids said, well, is Jesus coming back then? And Ann and I said, well, no man knows the day or the hour. I mean, Jesus makes it really clear um, not to try to guess at when he's coming back, but just to be ready, he could come back before I'm done with this sermon. He could come back in a thousand years. I don't know. I don't know the day or the hour. And this child said, well, I hope he didn't come back then because, and I don't even remember what it was, but because I want to get a car first. Or, you know, I want to go on this date first. I, I want to go to Christmas dance first or whatever it was. So, it, Jesus, if you could just hold what you got. Don't, don't quite come back yet until I can get this one done, taken care of. And we laughed about that as, around the dinner table. But the more I've thought about that, that's why we have such a hard time with joy. We don't think about, we think, well, Jesus, don't come back yet. I'm getting a new boat this spring. And we're clinging to the things of this world. We're like a little kid holding on to plastic toys when God's trying to give us real things. And so I want to go back to that hymn. And as we come to a time of invitation, Brian, I hope I'm not throwing a wrench, but I want us to sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. That's exactly what we're talking about. We are in exile. This world is not our home. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory or the grave. Oh, come, thou dayspring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death dark shadows put to flight. Don't cling to this world. Look to Jesus. Let him be the source of your joy. Let him be the author and finisher of everything in your life. And you will live a life of joy eternal. Father God, Lord, I pray the blessing on the preaching of your word. I pray that we would look to you. I pray that we would not live in fear, that we would not live a life focused on this world. But God, we would look across the Jordan 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.